Hi, everybody, and welcome to this month's Mercia Auditing and Accounting podcast with me, Lee Eagling. Today, I'm really pleased that I've got uh, my guest with me, colleague Jenny Faulkner. Jenny, if you want to say hello to everybody. Mm, yeah, thanks, Lee, and hi to everyone. Um, hopefully, this will be a really informative and interesting podcast for everyone to listen to. Um, so, Lee has kindly invited me today um, to talk about one of the um, one of the procedures that I undertake as part of my role. So, I'm head of audit accounts and compliance at Mercia. So, I have the wonderful job of looking after uh, everything training related, whether that be CPUD or um, practical workshops, student um, training. And I also look after um, all of the file review teams and the methodology team as well. And as as part of my role, really, I oversee audit quality for Mercia. And so as part of that, I do a biannual, and by biannual, I mean twice a year, quality control check. On- Not once every two years, Jen, always no, to clarify I know. Do you know why? I, I always clarify because it, it's very confusing, the word biannual. Um, so just to clarify, twice a year, not every other year, absolutely. Um, I look at the file review reports that have been uh, produced by the team and I look at them in the context of the gradings that have been given. Um, so internally, we look at every degrade given um, as a matter of course. So they are always hot reviewed by another member of the team. Um, but outside of that, I look at a sample of uh, reports twice a year uh, for those graded eight to see. And I look at at least one um, at every opportunity for, for every individual who does reviews. And it's always an interesting time of year when I complete this. Um, this time round, I completed it. And then about a week later, the QAD monitoring report came out. And uh, I think you won't be surprised to know that there were a few crossover points there. And so really, today's session is just to chat you through what some of those issues are and really try and help firms understand what they might be doing wrong in some of these instances. Thanks, Jenny. I think really interesting there is, as you say, it's often quite good to compare those findings that come out of our file reviews. I think we clearly see themes internally as we do our monitoring, like I said, not just throughout the year, but maybe year on year as well. I think in this instance, it is quite interesting to draw that correlation to to certainly the themes that the QAD have pulled out and, and dare I say, other monitoring bodies as well. I suspect there is quite a, a, an underlying theme across all of that. Absolutely. And, uh, I've just written a blog as well, so that will go off on the website. So I'm already doing well by marketing other other Mercia items, and um, so that'll be up shameless on the selling, Jenny. I, Shame, I know who selling. would believe it. Who would believe it? <laughs> One of the interesting things I always think is, uh, I mean, I've worked at Mercia for over oh God, let's count over twelve years. During that period. If I think back to what I would have wrote as the 10 common file review issues back 12 years ago, and then what would I have written, um, at, you know, years behind and year 10, et cetera, et cetera, would they be any different to say that there's still quite a few items on there that would still be on there today as they were 12 years ago? Um, so I think if I compare, well, sorry, you know, 
Get, I was going to say, I think if I if I compare maybe with a slightly shorter and, and narrower time frame, but let's say five years, I would probably quite confidently say no, not really, um, which is fr- frustrating. Um, I think there's a combination of, of factors for that. Again, some we'll, we'll dive into in a little bit more detail. I think the nature of the items that we see recurring themes, just the nature of the beasts, are quite tricky, and therefore doesn't matter at what point in time you look at them, they're still difficult areas to audit and demonstrate you've audited them them well. And then I think combined with the fact of, okay, maybe changes to auditing standards or changes to then monitoring interpretation of those auditing standards, even if the standard itself doesn't change, the the quality bar constantly gets nudged forwards as well. And I think it's that theme that it's always the same topics that potentially bubble around. You maybe get a little bit of evolution, but it's probably that, that the bar's ever moving rather than the topics are ever moving and changing, dare I say. And I think that's a really, really important part of this because do I think audit quality is improving? Yes, I think I do. I genuinely do think audit quality is getting better. Um, and that is because the standards are evolving um, I won't get into the debate as to um, whether they are where they should be, where they should be. Um, I think that's quite an interesting um, for another day to talk about. <laughs> but I could probably spend all day, as I know you could, Lee, um, debating um, scalability, shall we say, of the ISAs. Um, but the bar is getting higher, and auditors have moved with the times. And um, I've just come off a call with um, a software um, firm who who work in the audit space. And actually, that's a really interesting area as firms are using uh, audit uh, technology and audit more and more. It is helping to drive up quality. It's also helping to drive up efficiency, which um, I think all firms will be very thankful for, um, certainly in the scope of uh, recovery fees and the like. Um, but we are seeing an improvement. And I think sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we only look at the negatives. Oh, what are the themes? Oh, they're still the same as always. But you're quite right. They they are the more complicated area. They are the more judgmental area. Um, and quite often, as I know you find as well, Lee, when you review, um, when you talk to the audit client at the end of it, you kind of go through what what might have been problematic on the file. And actually, you do sometimes get a real gist for the fact that they know exactly what has gone on at that client. They've understood it, but their level of documentation doesn't stack up. Oh, ab- absolutely. I, that I think... has been a problem for a long time. Yeah, no, so that, that again, I think back to my time as an auditor and that was always the challenge is sort of as for those of you that have been on the receiving end of either a direct lecture from me or a, a file review from me phrase or joke well often uses treat your audit file like an exam it, it needs to show your workings for for how you've got there and, and jenny as you've just said that dialogue you often have with an ri manager other team members at the end of the review you come away from that thinking yeah they they've got to the nub of the issue unfortunately their file does not tell me that story. And it clearly doesn't need to be articulated in in war and peace lens, but it's how do you capture that nice and concise so that, okay, if you do get a reviewer, dare I say a jobs worth like myself coming along and and reviewing your file, it it 
gets me comfortable that, yeah, you have appraised the judgments that your client has made, how you've critiqued those, and then yeah, how you've then reached your conclusion rather than just being, here's the conclusion and not the, the narrative that sits behind that. I'm not going to dwell too much on documentation, but it was one area that I did want to draw out at the beginning of this podcast because it is an underlying issue that we see across numerous files and at all different sized firms as well. This isn't just, you know, sole practitioner, auditor um, who is doing the work themselves. Um, we do see documentation issues with that type of audit, absolutely. Um, but we see it at our bigger clients as well. And I love the phrase you used, you, you used a moment ago. We use it internally, so I think it's quite natural for us. Um, but it is all about telling the story um, and getting that onto, onto the file somehow. Shall we go through some of my key themes? Let's. I wimped out a little bit when I was starting to think about this early and I thought, oh, there's lots of different things I want to talk about. I'm just going to put professional scepticism at number one. And that covers a multitude of sins, doesn't it, at the end of the day? Uh, Yeah, I think I often, if I go on a bit of a tangent, I've got to record podcasts that certainly I've done in, in recent times, I think Phil Frost maybe covered the topic a year or so ago around the FRC's top 10 issues. I almost think about where they badge judgments and estimates as, as maybe sort of bouncing around their top 10. I often feel you can see that that's double counting that because it, it often gets embroiled with the number of errors. And I think to say professional scepticism as an audit issue is is a key matter. Yes, it, it clearly is, but it, it manifests itself in various different ways depending on the particular error that you're looking at. And, you know, you take the, the QAD monitoring. Um, what what do they have on their um, report this year? They've got valuations, revenue, that they are areas that need professional scepticism. The, the one that particularly sticks out in, in my mind from, from their list, and it was interesting, I was with a firm last week who the QAD had raised this specific point with them and we then had a bit of a workshop to to, to look at their specific file and think about how they might want to take that forward is, is long-term contracts and contract accounting. Um, dare I say, that's been a, a consistent theme of certainly my mercy career. If I see a file with contract accounting in it, it will probably be one that on the balance of probability, won't receive certainly a very favourable grade. It will probably be somewhere to just get an okay grade or maybe then slipping into the more marginal categories. Interestingly, I have put long-term contracting as a singular point, as a yes. second point. So um, that was high above Sorry. my list as well. No, 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 no. I'll I'll come back to that. In, a, yeah. in fact, maybe I don't. Maybe I just do long-term yeah. contracting now. I always find it's a little bit of a one end of the spectrum. So... If it's done well, it is done really well because actually what the auditor understands is I shouldn't just be looking to test revenue singularly and look at um, my balance sheet items separately and look at my cost of sales separately. Actually, the better way to test this is to do it via the contract itself. It's almost so, like you've read a lot of recommendations I make in my reports, Jenna. It's kind of a control process. <laughs> Who would have thought? Um, and it, it's just, it still astounds me a little bit that auditors are still trying to apply what I consider almost the standard audit procedures for a manufacturing type business or some sort of service business where, yes, you, you, you do think about 
the balance sheet item or the class of transaction um, individually. But when you're dealing with long-term contracting, whether you know that's construction or engineering or whatever it may be, then actually you are just much better following that contract through. And oh my God, once you take that as an approach, you're generally off to a good start. The next big one then is all of the judgments that you come across as you start to walk through that contract. Um, and here's where it absolutely links back into that professional scepticism. What we don't want to see and what we do see often, unfortunately, is a management have told us this. Management have said that. Um, yeah, okay. Where's your corroboration of that? Okay. Why are you just speaking to management? If I was doing long-term contracting, the people I'd be interesting, I'd be interested in speaking to are the project managers and the quantity surveyors. I used to work in construction, so I'm slightly biased here. That was my first job before I became an auditor. So where I met my husband, he works in construction. I, you know, it, it baffles me that auditors don't speak to the right people. Um, when they're dealing with these types of areas. Yeah, without wanting to, um, to go back on too much of a tangent, Jenny, but I think certainly the file doesn't show they've spoken <laughs> to the relevant people. Okay, well, yeah. I, I, they're saying I, I, I still they don't still, but yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I, I would agree that certainly from, from the concept of what I'm looking for as a file reviewer, the file needs to tell me that story. Part of the problem there may be, well, it's not actually being done at all in, in some instances. <laughs> yeah. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, things like costing her, what, what, how have they actually audited that balance? How have they got an understanding of it? Is, is business good at making estimates? It's, it's going back to estimates at the end of the day. Well, have we looked at previous years and how good they were at estimating what costs to accrue were, um, were still there versus what actually came in? Because that's clear evidence that would help support um, the justifications and, and reasons for, for why they've gone for whatever figure they've gone for at the end of the day. Um, so yes, long-term contracting, um, definitely apply your professional scepticism um, when doing that. Um, but if it's done well, it, it's often done really, really well. Um, but unfortunately, there's a lot of files that don't demonstrate. They understand, one, how to audit it, and two, how to apply scepticism. Yeah. Uh, if, if I could just broaden on, on that as well, Jenny, I, I think, again, linking back to the discussion I had with, with a firm last week, I, I think a key challenge in that area is all clients, I think, have their own individual processes and mechanisms to work out the contract accounting balances that they need to account for. Very rarely do you see two entities doing it exactly the same way. That then links back to the, well, does the auditor truly understand what their client is doing to then be able to refine their testing approach for that specific entity rather than trying to, again, as I spoke to the firm last week, I can on paper give you a nice model to follow to test contract accounting, but it does need some modification and adaptation to reflect what that particular entity themselves do. It goes back to something else. At the heart of a good order, understanding your entity and its environment, i.e. ISA 315, is absolutely critical. Because what Lee was really alluding, is alluding to here, is the fact that you need to know exactly 
what that individual entity is doing with their processes, with their policies, with their accounting. And until you have that thorough understanding, you can't plan the appropriate risks. Sorry, you can't plan your appropriate responses to address any risks that have been identified. I think that's a really important part of long-term contracting and understanding that. But actually, um, there's a real wider piece here. And this is one of the areas that I've noted down within this cycle of quality control is actually the linkage of risk throughout the audit file isn't as good as I would hope it to be. And I suspect some of this might be documentation, um, but what where I find weaknesses is even at the planning stage, um, you take something like a preliminary analytical review and the whole concept of that is to drive risk assessment. Um, and I'm always disappointed a lot of the time to see comments such as, you know, a balance has moved by, let's say, 25%. We will understand this at audit field work time. And I think, well, okay, that's great. How about you understand it now? And if it's because you don't understand it and therefore there's a potential error in there, then you actually respond to that risk and ensure that you're going to do sufficient, appropriate audit work to address that particular risk. If I could um, just chip in there as well, I think that if I'm using sort of air quotes here, but the understand that difference piece is quite an interesting interpretation. I think even as a file reviewer, I'd be relatively relaxed, even if the, the planning stage go, we've got a significant movement here, that looks unusual, we don't understand it. Well, let's then factor that into our risk assessment. We'll then go and pick on that particular balance, be it for, okay, it looks higher than it should be. So let's think about existence or it's lower than we would expect it. Let's think about completeness. I'd maybe be sympathetic if it didn't get to the nub of the problem at planning. That's almost what your field work testing should do. But it is that that context that's lacking. It's as the to, context of if you, if you don't yeah. understand it, then how are you addressing it? And the, a lot of audit teams just, don't identify this and, and don't do anything with. And so what we find often is that the risks identified aren't necessarily what the risks should be. And we quite often find that in reviews that we identify additional risks that perhaps the auditor hasn't. But then more so, I think where I'm coming from is the linkage then throughout the file. So if we've identified a significant risk, and I'm just going to use um, the common revenue recognition in relation to fraud risk. Um, so, yeah, we know this is a significant risk uh, as per ISO 240. Yes, Presumed. you can yeah, rebut it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yes, you can rebut it. Absolutely need to make sure there's a very good reason for it and it's documented. Uh, but for, you know, a lot of files, there will be that risk. And what we don't see is actually the the auditors thinking about, well, what does that mean for this entity? Is it the fact that we think cutoff is a problem? Do we think um, that 
classifications a problem? Probably not. But what is it? And that might be in the context of um, the different revenue streams, or that might be in the context of different assertions. And then once we've got to that point of where we think fraud potentially might be arising, then what is our planned response to that significant risk? And I do think audit files are weak across this area. And I think audit files have always been quite weak here, but the revision twice of 315 has perhaps brought it to people's forefront um, because we're revisiting planning in a different way and quite rightly. I think, um, sort of, sorry, Jen, just to add a, a further point to that as well, I think the the presumed fraud risk in, in revenue under ASA 240 is a bit of a double-edged sword. I think you're absolutely right. From a quality perspective and a risk assessment perspective, it's probably not doing well for a while in terms of understanding what that specific risk is. I then think a lot of firms maybe do potentially more work than they need to over revenue as a whole because... I think that's they, a really good they've point. Not, they've not... He compartmentalised where the risks are. There is, there is. It's not a one. There's a definite mixed bag because I've certainly seen numerous files where they've just said turnover is a significant risk, and actually that isn't what ISA two forty is trying to get at. It's trying to get you to understand where in turnover, what is that actual risk, and that will be different entity to entity. You know, a business. that is due to be sold during the, you know, post year end, that's going to have a very different revenue recognition risk in relation to fraud than um, a business who's long term contracting. You know, you, you, you're going to end up with different, or hopefully very different responses. But we certainly do see some firms just going, okay, that must mean that turnover is a significant risk. It's high, therefore I've got to do X amount of testing. Maybe a topic for another day, but is my my little pet peeve at the minute around the difference between significant and high on a spectrum of risk and and, well, and quite know, where there could be a correlation there, but where there doesn't always necessarily. Well, have a significant to be, but... risk has to be at the higher end of the spectrum. We should do enough podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I'm got just a little bit of on time yes. um, for today. So, what else did I want to draw out? One thing that just makes me smile, I just want to go back to professional scepticism because it's been in my head since we started. Don't just rely on management's comments. That's what I was making earlier. But linked to that, don't then just go get a management representation uh, off the back of that because I've seen perhaps a few too many files um, that clearly don't demonstrate scepticism because they get a comment and then get a representation. That management representation letter, the representations are there to support the audit evidence that has been obtained. I don't want to get too geeky on us us now, but ISA 580 is quite clear that it cannot be used as evidence alone. The ISA cannot be more clear that you can't do that or shouldn't do that. (laughs) Absolutely. But, you know, there there are a lot of firms out there who unfortunately perhaps aren't aware of that um, 580 requirement. The other one that has made me smile this year, whenever I think about scepticism, is um, the FRC case, the Babcock one 
in relation to, I can see you smiling. On yeah, I was going to say, I'm conscious this is a podcast, not a vodcast, but I'm, I, as Danny's realised for a few things, I'm not, a good, I'm not a good poker player and I've got a smirk <laughs> on my face. It's, you definitely have. Um, it's just one of my favourite ones. I mean, oh my God, if you've got highly material contracts, well, uh, you know, you could say, well done, you know, for the auditor getting a copy of the contract, that's always a good starting place. If it's in French and you don't have anyone who speaks French in your team or in the firm, do you think perhaps you should arrange for a translation into English? You you would hope so, wouldn't you? Um, so, I, you know, it's, it's one to smile about because I think every audit firm would look at that and go, I would never make that mistake. Who on earth would do that? But clearly things happen. I, I think, though, this comes back to the... I don't think many firms would do that, but does the file then tell the story of what they actually have done? And if it's, okay, we have got that contract translated, we understand it, and therefore we're comfortable with the conclusion, have they documented quite how they, they got there? And I think that, again, whilst we're conscious, we don't want to talk about documentation too much. I think that's an important segue Absolutely. back to that. Uh, just on a, a related theme, I think it's not just foreign language as well to consider there. I think it's be mindful of, do you understand maybe wider technical jargon in a contract? And as an accountant and an auditor, can you interpret that or do you need an expert opinion? So it's it's maybe broader than just the the actual language something is written in in terms of English, French, whatever it, whatever it may be. But can you demonstrate you truly understand the clauses and terms of a particular contract and therefore okay. conclude on that? And one of the things that I, I, I honestly hadn't written down, but I know is in the QAD report is is property valuations and that being another theme. I, in my head, I've kind of gone, that kind of links back to the professional scepticism yeah. angle with it being, you know, an estimate, but also linked into what you were just saying about experts. More often than not, when we see um, service organisations or management experts then we are finding issues on the audit file because there there isn't enough skepticism. Maybe maybe one for another day as well as well, Jenny. What's the difference between a service organisation and an expert? Oh, but again, let's, get let's not get into that. Let's not get into that now. Key areas which we both love. Yeah. Um, but yes, we could maybe that that's a good one to to really get into. But all I wanted to say around experts was it's exceptionally rare. I see any audit firm outside of the biggest firms thinking about getting an auditor's expert involved. And with the size of audit clients that we, you know, audit clients that we see nowadays um, and the audit fees that they generate, really, we need to think about, well, what, what's in here? Are there balances that we don't have the expertise on ourselves? And do we need to engage somebody else to support us in this process? Um, and I think firms are very, very reluctant. And, you know, I do understand um, the pressures and the like, but at the end of the day, we've got to make sure that audit quality is the answer, not the pressure. Yeah, I think where, I, where I've seen firms maybe being more receptive to that is, say, if, if they're uncertain about a conclusion and they've got an inkling and want something to back up almost as a counter-argument to the client, they're maybe more receptive to go do it then. 
almost seeking it as corroborative evidence. Again, it maybe comes back to, well, I'm comfortable with what my client's saying in inverted brackets, and therefore I can just document that on my file rather than think about, okay, do I need something tangible to corroborate that? And, and that's maybe how firms should be broadening their thought process there. I did have one more thing that I had on my list. Well, I had lots of things on my list, but, you know, one maybe time for one more, um, which is opening balances. Um, Another subject close to my heart. I know. I, I always find it goes through pockets, this one. Um, and I suppose there's a couple of elements to it. There's the, yep, yeah, you might have a predecessor auditor. Um, go out and see them. Um, go review their working papers um, and make sure you're comfortable with them. Now, I suppose issues arise here if you're dealing with an audit which isn't a Companies Act audit. Um, so there isn't that legality as to um, the right to, to the access to those working papers. I've also seen a few things being sprouted around recently around uh, predecessor auditors being quite restrictive over access of their working papers. Um, and I suppose what I always say to clients then is, why are they doing that? Do you understand that? Um, and just have your sceptical hat on when you see scenarios like that. If if they've got electronic files and they won't let you access those electronic files remotely, what is the underlying reason for that? And do we truly understand it? And has that bill been built into our take-on procedures? Because um, I think that sometimes goes amiss a little bit. Um, I find that's the easier side of opening balances. The slightly more challenging side then is um, perhaps a first-year order um, whereby you are, especially if you've got stock involved and you know you haven't been to see the opening stock figure, i.e. last year's um, stock balance and you didn't go do the stock count, um, you are going to be looking at qualifications and the like. And I think just and to I think add we can to talk to about, I know that. you're going to talk about the yeah. report now. Yeah, yeah. sorry. I, again, I'll, I'll, yeah, yeah. And, and I know, again, something that I, I think I've covered on a, on a podcast in, in days gone by, but I think most firms are pretty good at thinking about, okay, year one, I've got an issue there. Generally, most are still pretty good at year two in terms of, okay, the flow through that on my comparatives, yeah. but don't ignore that there is a, a year three impacts almost sort of the year plus two after the non-attendance of a stock count. That would probably still drive a qualification because of comparability. And that's one that we, not, I'd say commonly for that scenario, we see get overlooked. Yeah. Sorry, Jenny, I couldn't help myself there. I know. Well, no, I knew you were going to. I was almost shutting up because I knew it was yeah. um, one of your favourite favourite topics. Yeah, favourite's a relative term, but yes. <laughs> the the other one that crops up, which is is on the QAD monitoring report, is is groups, and there's so many different angles you can look at here. But um, ISIS six hundred compliance, it's often not great. And I think I'll leave it at that. That's yeah, probably just as a, all I've got time. Certainly what, what we're trying to do to be helpful is clearly those of you that take our methodology, you'll see that we've pushed out revisions for, for the new ISO 600. And, and it's one of the few in recent times where we're encouraging early adoption because the, certainly the changes from a UK standard to, to UK standard are, I'm not going to say minimal, that's maybe cheapening it a little bit, but they're not as extensive, say, going from the international old version to the new standard and the, the those updates will help draw out where there's maybe weaknesses 
already under the prevailing ISA. And I'll maybe leave it at that. Well, it's been brilliant to chat to you today, Lee. No, so, perfect. Thank, thank you, Jenny, for joining me. Always a pleasure. And I'm, I'm sure in, in due course, we will either myself and yourself or a combination of, of other members of the, of the technical team try and get a similar discussion and, and debate going on future podcasts. Cool. Well, I hope you've, uh, we hope everybody's found that useful. Uh, again, my pleasure talking to you uh, again and look forward to either seeing you on a file review, um, a course or uh, uh, another podcast soon. Do take care. Thank you for listening to the Mercia podcast. For more information on this topic, please visit mercia-group.com.